Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys, welcome back. Happy Friday, and we're getting into another podcast here today. Man, this is going to be a really fun one, and we're going to be diving into the world of military surplus rifles, also known as Millsurps. And this is cool because Millsurps have a ton of history, not only an engineering aspect that goes into some of these uh, guns that we're going to talk about, but you know, just the history is really cool, some of the conflicts they were used in, uh, the brave men and women that carried many of these rifles into combat. Uh, it's just really cool to see the history of various military forces around the world and what they used as tools to survive on the battlefield. For me, that's one of the things that's always been so fascinating about Millsurps is to think that you're holding a gun that you know could have literally spelled the end or saved someone in a theater of war. Uh, it's a really interesting thing. It's a, it's a very um, eclectic area to collect things in, is the Millsurp world for sure. It is. It's. It is a very eclectic niche market, um, and what really enamors me with it is that I'm not a huge fan of Millsurps. I like Millsurps, but I like them for the reason uh, that a lot of people do, and that's just the history and the story of those weapons. So, you know, for example, some collectors will want an unfired um, version or. Uh, item for their collection you know they want to pull something out of a crate that's been you know wrapped in cosmoline never fired and that's like the 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 epitome of what that is it's perfect a perfect example um i am more of the i want the the fire weapon i want the battlefield pickup weapon um because it has a history attached to it and that's what that's what really uh, enamors me with that is that history that's tied to the actual weapon not so much of owning the weapon itself yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. You, you do get into a lot of different types of people in terms of how they approach Millsurps, right? I mean, some people want the museum-grade piece that is super, super fancy. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, the guys at Rock Island uh, Auction House, you know, they, they get in some examples that are extremely nice and extremely collectible. And not only military rifles, but a bunch of collectible rifles as well. And then there's obviously, you know, specialized, um, you know, stores all over the United States that kind of, you know, they deal specifically in antiques and military. Uh, I've done some business with Simpsons Limited. Um, I've done some business with Collector's Firearms. Uh, I've done a bit of business with the Winchester uh, out in Texas. They're also kind of a collectible gun shop. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done some business with Guns of Yesteryear, a little place up here in Dalton. Uh, This literally a dude on the side of the road in a little shack and it's full of old, <laughs> you know, antiques and military, which is really cool. So I've um, procured various examples of my travels over the years and uh, dealing with various uh, places. I've dealt with uh, IMA, uh, International Military Antiques. You know, they got the uh, report, uh, the, I'm sorry, the uh, Nepalese Royal Cash uh, that came out of the Royal Arsenal in Nepal. Um, so there are several guns in this room that we're in right now that, uh, that come out of that, um, arsenal. And I got those through IMA. Uh, that collection was with Atlanta Cutlery over here in, uh, Conyers before IMA, uh, got the entire, 
a lot of guns shipped back up there to them. I guess they bought their interest in it out. Because I, I believe it was a group of guys that got together and, and procured all of those uh, guns, antique cannons, uh, tons of Martini Henrys, percussion muskets, all different types of stuff, swords, you name it, everything. Everything that you would expect in a uh, military arsenal from the Victorian era uh, was pretty much in there. Um, and some modern machine guns, too. You know, they, they did have some uh, stand guns and auto-loading pistols and things like that. But most of the treasure trove uh, from the Royal Arsenal in Nepal was the uh, uh, antique military that was in there. Um, so we'll dive into a couple of different guns. Now, we, we've got a few things here on hand that we're going to be sort of looking at. And just um, I'm going to let... Uh, Matt, grab a few of these and check them out, and you can get some of his feedback. And I'll sort of go over some of the history, and we'll just go over some cool guns. Uh, let's start out with a, a real common Milsert, uh, a German K98 service rifle, uh, if you want to grab it right there. Um, second one, by, by, by the K31. Keep going. Yep, no, next to it, to the right, to the right, right there. There you go. <laughs> All right. So we got a. They all look the same. Yeah, they they can look very similar. So you got the K ninety eight there, and this was the primary German service rifle until about the end of World War II, and a really really cool setup. Um, it's basically a shortened version of the Gewehr ninety eight service rifle, and uh, we're not going to get into every little tiny minutia in terms of the history, but I think when a lot of people you know deal with Milserp rifles. I think most people, when they think a Mauser rifle, this is the rifle they think of. I mean, this is the rifle that people tend to kind of go to and say, hey, that's a Mauser. Yes. Uh, I can tell you that the action on it is still like glass. Um, it's it's a great action. It What really gets me with Mill Serps is one, the history. So this is something that very well could have been used and probably was used during the war. So during wartime, there was somebody using this rifle. It was dragged through the mud. It was on the battlefield. And it's just a very, very unique piece of history to be holding it in your hands. This has made a very, very long journey oh, yeah. from where it was at to where it is now. And if you were to put a round in this chamber and go outside and pull the trigger, it would still hit the target it would still hit exactly where you wanted it to hit so interesting footnote about the rifle that you're holding it's actually a russian capture uh we know that because of the electro penciling on the bolt handle so if you look at the bolt you see those kind of crude electro pencil marks yep uh the russians went through and refurbished them when they captured them and they would refinish the stocks and re-blue the metal you know and all that sort of stuff and then they would um electro pencil the parts and stuff so that's actually a russian capture gun so absolutely uh, that gun was likely captured on the Eastern Front in World War II. Very cool. And I know that um, that's what really makes it unique because I, I gifted a good buddy of mine, uh, uh, Arisaka or Ariska, I've, I've heard people say both, uh, where I had the, and he was, he's actually um, half Japanese, so he does have like that, that heritage, his grandfather uh, fought on the imperial side. Um, so he would just tell me stories about that. And it really made me want to give him a piece of that history uh, that he can kind of collect. And it had the the emperor's seal and it was burnished across. And 
when you start getting into the history of those types of things, it's like, oh, that means that was a surrendered weapon, which means it was used, which means somebody, uh, there's an imperial soldier that carried that weapon. And there's such a rich history on those types of weapons that how can you not truly you know, enjoy that and just knowing the story behind it? And, and you have to think like, you know, did that young um, imperial soldier, did he die right. with it? Did he surrender? Did he give it up? Did he drop it? Did he lose it? It's just weird to think like that those guns kind of live on and and they outlive us, right? I mean, this K98 will outlive me by centuries. I mean, two or three hundred years from now, even possibly, someone could be shooting and using this rifle. I mean, they, they last forever. They're super well-made. They're rugged. And as long as they're stored correctly, um, they'll outlive all of us. Ten times over. I mean, the quality of them is outstanding to, to considering today's standards. I mean, this is a better quality firearm than what you find coming out of a lot of firearms manufacturers now. As far as like the QC process, um, I mean, it's just a great. I mean, it's just great overall. I, they really are. And uh, when you look at a lot of sporting rifles that are made now, I know uh, this last Christmas I gave you that M seventy seven Mark II. Oh man, yeah. And thirty L six. Well, you notice that the action on this and compare it to like the M77 uh, Mark II from Ruger, Mm -hmm. it is a Mauser. It's a Mauser action. So a lot of sporting rifles take their lines and functionality from the Mauser action. Yep. And I cut my teeth on the Mauser action with your uh, 66. And that thing is attack driver. Yep. And I mean, that is... Yeah, the Model 66 was Mauser's first commercial gun after World War II. Yep. And that's talk about glass, guys. Yeah. That bolt is phenomenal. Yeah, it's a little bit different action than a standard Mauser, but it is certainly a uh, really unique thing. And, and Mauser as a company has done really well at, you know, even in this modern era, uh, doing just really awesome things with, with everything they're dealing with. And they, and they make really nice guns to this day. Um so grab something else. Why don't you grab that K31 over there, and we'll, uh, uh, to the right. Right? All the way in the end. Yep, right there. You had it. You could have just said the one with the straight pull bolt. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been like, oh, okay, got it. All right, so what we've got here is a Swiss K31 service rifle. Uh, these guns are really neat. They were in service from 1931 to 1958. Okay. Um, and in 58, they were replaced by the... Uh, oh gosh, what was that gun called? The PE-57 or the STG-58, um, which is basically their select fire and semi-auto, yep. uh, 7.5 by 55. And it's really cool because um, those guns are very, very difficult. Uh, the PE-57s are really difficult to get here in the United States. Uh, not very many of them were brought in before the ban back in 94, um, so they're very uncommon. Um, but you notice like on the on the PE-57, it's got that really, that same type of like funky little barrel charging handle mm-hmm. on the side you know yep. just like the straight pull on the k31 but um the k31s cost the swiss government about 42 swiss francs to produce you would never be able to produce that at that price point now well never. no i mean in, in today's money and with uh you know if you had to get a, a modern company to make and reproduce a k31 to the same standards the originals were made uh, you would certainly spend a lot of money. It would easily be a four or five thousand dollar rifle for sure. The the, the craftsmanship of the, and this this rifle feels completely different than the. I mean, this is this. It's a big girthier rifle. Like the field stock is girthier. It's just made for a bigger stature of person. You could tell. You definitely can tell. 
Yep. The straight pull mechanism is really neat. Um, if you think about it, the way the bolt cams on the sleeve, um, it, it's really like an M16 bolt sort of in a way, but with no gas system and with no return springs. So you pull straight to the rear, it extracts the cartridge, you push straight forward again, and in closing, uh, the bolt rotates back into place after stripping around off the magazine. It's a very intuitive system, and it's completely ambidextrous because it ejects straight up out of the top. Well, a left-handed shooter obviously would have difficulty working right. the bolt, but they did experiment with conversions uh, to bring the bolt handle to the left for a left-handed shooter, so they it, did have the foresight to do that. It's a very interesting bolt mechanism. I can see why they would use that. And it kind of eliminates the need to palm the actual bolt. Because when you're using the the standard bolt mechanism where you can kind of like rotate the ball in the palm of your hand, it's really eliminating that that part of the action. You're just straight pulling it back. It does take some getting used to, for sure. It does allow you to lay in the prone a lot easier yes. and shoot from the prone without exposing yourself nearly as much as you're running a turn bolt. Um, so this gun is a culmination of a long line of Swiss rifles starting around 1899 with the Schmidt Rubin. Uh, I actually do have a Schmidt Rubin over there. I can show you at some point. But um, the, the gun design has gone through a lot of revisions all the way from 1899 to 1931. And the K31 is the uh, culmination of, of that engineering. And they really are neat guns. I feel like they're overlooked a lot. And the prices on them have continuously skyrocketed. And just gone crazy. What is the little uh, circle hanging off the back? Okay, that ring. Yes. So that's that's literally attached directly to your firing pin. If you'll take that ring and pull it to the rear, rotate it. See the see the cutout in the back of the bolt. Yep, that's your safety. Oh. That locks the action shut. Okay, uh, so you can't open the action, and the gun's on safe. So that's your safety. There you go. Cool. And then you rotate the ring back out, and that yeah. puts it on on fire. That fires a 7.5 by 55 uh, cartridge. It's a, it's a great cartridge. I mean, it's on par with like Alt-6, 8mm, 303. It, it's very similar, um, you know, kind of power range that all the other World War II cartridges are generating. It's just a beefier rifle in general, though. Yeah. Like, it just definitely is bigger. Yep. You can just grab the next one in the line. We'll kind of go through them. Yeah, Millsurps are really cool. And, um, I mean, I love the K31. It's probably my favorite um, bolt-action World War II rifle. Uh, I do like the K98, you know, just the history there and everything. Um, keep down towards me. Keep going. Yeah, that's another K31 you just grabbed. Yeah, you can just grab whatever you want. That's fine. Right there. All right. So earlier we were talking about the Nepalese cache uh, that IMI and Lana Cutlery, you know, went over there. And, uh, and, and it ended up being, gosh, like several, several ship shipping containers uh, full of militaria. Uh, what you're holding right there is a Martini Henry. Uh, now, that one is a Mark I Grade Two, So that's a Mark I with a short lever. Um, so that's a very, very early style of Martini Henry. It's got the long Knox form on the barrel. You can see see that octagonal portion at the rear of the barrel? Yeah. See how it's kind of long? Uh, that's an old school style of uh, Knox form on the barrel. Uh, it's got the barley corn basic sights on it. Really beautiful fiddleback stock with lots of figuring in it. Really pretty, pretty rifle. And these were used in the Victorian era in the uh, British Empire. And, of course, at the time, Nepal was a part of the uh, British Empire, so they would get a lot of uh, support from the British in the form of small arms. 
And anytime the British would upgrade to the newest uh, version of whatever gun, a lot of times they would send their older models uh, to a lot of their colonies would be armed with like the next model down and they would send it as war aid and support for their colonies. Um, but that's a really nice gun. They're it, really neat. It's it's a beautiful stock. I think I commented on that when you were, when you were choosing um, the rifles that we're going to use today. And it's just this beautiful dark walnut with like tiger striping like a natural tiger stripe on it it's just you just don't see that uh anymore and what i take away from this is that while it is beautiful compared to the newer uh rifles and i say newer meaning like 1940s um it is a bit crude in the way that it's it's kind of fashioned together um but it's still intuitive so what i'm getting is like i'm looking at this and they have a Something that no, what even today is still something that a lot of people don't do is when you have your your hand around the field stock, most people will wrap their thumb around the top of the actual stock, but they have like a little a little thumb cutout here to kind of a natural resting position for your thumb. So it's very forward thinking because it's not a natural a natural hand position. It's yeah. more like a pistol grip. They're trying to force you into a pistol grip position on a martini henry well yeah and those guns kick pretty hard too so i guess they're trying to keep you from busting your nose open and all that sort of stuff too so okay that's sort of there to naturally want you to place your thumb on that little thumb rest right uh fires a 577 450 cartridge um so it's a 480 grain bullet propelled by i think the military loads about 100 grains of black Mm -hmm. um so definitely not a slouch of a cartridge um I load it with 100 grains. The military loading might have been more like maybe 80 or 90 grains. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, there's like this little grease cookie that goes in there. Um, I did an entire YouTube video on making uh, the ammunition for this uh, particular gun, and it's it's quite a laborious process to shoot them, uh, but it is very rewarding. And uh, they do hit like a jackhammer. They are very, very cool. And the action on this gun is kind of like a falling block, like a Peabody uh, action. So you pull the... uh, lever downward and when you do it cams the block downward and also um, actuates the ejector which pulls the cartridge out very intuitive and simple design very functional now this being a mark one has a short lever uh, during the zulu battles and everything like that they were using um, basically what was called a, a japan rolled foil case uh, they weren't using solid drawn cases, and as the guns were heating up, those foil cases were getting stuck in the chamber really bad. So they designed the Mark IV and some of the later versions with the longer levers on them, thinking they needed the additional lever length to get better extraction, when in reality it wasn't anything to do with the amount of leverage that the lever was providing. It was just the ammo they were using being a rolled case didn't hold up very good in field environment. Yeah, Once they switched some to a drawn case... Uh, that pretty much made all those problems go away. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a very nice, nice example. Let's uh, grab another gun here. So we got a few things to talk about. We're just trying to give you all an idea of some of the cool mill serps that are out there. And up until recent times, I mean, many of these have been very affordable. Uh, they're not quite so much anymore. One of my favorites. All right. So we've got a Finnish M39. And... These are generally regarded sort of as like the Cadillac of the uh, Mosin the Gant family. So what do you think? Yeah. It's, it's nice. It, it feels very, uh, in the hands, it feels very similar to the Swedish 
that one. Oh, the, the Swiss K31? Yeah. If, yeah. I mean, as far as like the girth, the girth of the stock, it's very similar. Um, the K98 was definitely a much more uh, thinner profile, lighter. Uh, I'm, I can only assume it was designed around the stature of the soldier that was firing it. And uh, these two were, were the same way. They're just bigger. So the the Finim thirty uh, with the Finim thirty nine, essentially what the the Finnish did is they had so many captured M ninety one service rifles that they decided to you know make a service rifle based around the Mosin action. I mean, I mean, think about it. Why not? You've got thousands of them laying around. Uh, they're relatively inexpensive, if not <laughs> captured or bought as uh, aid from other countries. And I guess that because they came from such a long line of marksmen. The Finns have always had a, a very high um, amount of pride when it comes to the marksmanship of their citizens. So they essentially built kind of a military match rifle based around the Mosin. So a lot of people see them and they think, oh, it's just a turd, you know, because they made like 41 million M9130. So people think, oh, well, it's just an M9130 that you used to be able to buy at Kmart for $59. And oh, what could it really be worth, right? But the M39 is a much rarer uh, version of the Mosin, and they use really, really good match-grade barrels, a nice two-stage trigger, really great sights, uh, good sight ears up front to protect the front sight, uh, excellent bayonet mounting system. Uh, the stocks are made out of Arctic birch. They're usually a two-piece uh, that splice really, really strong for strength. And they are fantastic guns, uh, varying uh, sling mounting points. The slings they use are much higher quality, so the leather is made out of reindeer leather. So that comes from a reindeer. I would expect nothing less. Absolutely. <laughs> Arctic birch stocks that are beautifully figured. Yes. It's, it's, it's very similar, actually, um, to the walnut, the, the tiger stripe walnut, but it's a little bit lighter. That's right. Um, so on the K31s that we were looking at earlier, they made two different uh, types of stocks in the late in the 50s ones, the later versions are made out of beech wood. It's that blonde color mm -hmm. uh, kind of wood that you see. Actually, it's a good comparison right in front of you. So you got beech wood yep. on the one on the left, and the one on the right is walnut. So the early 40s, 1931 through, I think, about 1941 or 42, you're going to have a walnut stock. And then from 42 on, you'll have beech wood. Yeah, you can, you can definitely tell they put a ton of uh, pride into the rifle. Just with the, the trigger is really crisp. Um, the action is nice. This one has some Cosmoline on it still, so that's it, it is a little sticky. But I mean, just the overall craftsmanship of the rifle, the the trigger for the age of the rifle. I mean, you couldn't ask for anything more. I mean, I I've seen modern rifles that rust out and pit and turn into just hunks of trash before something like a, a Millsurp would. And I'm not saying that Millsurps are better, but it's just a testament to the mass production craftsmanship from yesteryear versus today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can take... A, so, um, Lapua still makes the D-166 projectile. So, the original um, ammunition in these guns uh, was a D-166, and that's a Lapua-produced 200-grain projectile. It's got a very unique boat tail on it and a very unique uh, ogive on the bullet. It's a relatively short bullet for having such a long bearing surface, so it lends itself to really, really great feats of accuracy. And uh, they still produce that bullet. So 
the Finns were using match-grade ammunition in their service rifles uh, back then. That's why on the Finn rifles, you'll see a D on the shank of the barrel, and that's to designate that the lead of the rifling and the chamber is, is cut specifically for the D-166 projectile. It's got a unique shank on it and a unique uh, ogive shape. So uh, some throats on some 9130s and other Russian service rifles may not chamber the as-issued D-166. So they open them up just a little bit to make room for that bigger projectile. So um, before yeah. we jump to the next rifle, I think that opens up a very good question. So when you start looking at Milserp rifles, um, there's two camps. There is the person that wants to collect it to actually shoot it, and they're not too concerned about um, the condition. They're not too concerned about replacement parts. And then you have the, the people that want the perfect example. Nothing can be replaced. Everything has to be original. Um, and I fall into the camp of, I just want the rifle to shoot it and to enjoy it for its historical value. And I, if I'm going to buy or purchase a Milserp rifle with the intent to hold on to it and maybe uh, for, the, for the value to increase, I would definitely consult uh, you, Eric, before I do that, because it's it was very similar to the vintage watch world. That's something I never got into because, quite frankly, it's scary to know that you, you don't know all of the ins and outs, especially with vintage. Like if you just if one piece isn't original, you bought um you mean you you might have just bought a paper white a paperweight. Mm-hmm. So I know firearms can be the same way. If you're going to buy a, a Milserp vintage rifle or even like a Mauser pistol or a Luger, you be- and those are big money, big ticket items, you better be sure that everything is original. Otherwise, you just overpaid for something considerably. That's a really good point, Matt. So we can touch on that quickly. Um, I've learned a lot from Mark Novak, and you know we Great had him guy, on yeah. the podcast here, and that's uh, Anvil Gunsmithing, Mr. Mm-hmm. Mark Novak. Uh, if you guys haven't listened to it, check out that podcast with Mark in it. It's great. Uh, he is just a wealth of knowledge, but one of his uh, sort of famous uh, markisms that he throws out there is the whole idea of deferred maintenance. Okay, and with this deferred maintenance, I mean, yeah, when you buy a Milserp, you're buying everything that comes along with it. You're buying all the uh, times it's been bumped around, dropped, kicked, uh, you know, fired. Uh, the bolt's been worked. Maybe parts have been replaced. Uh, maybe this stock was rotted out and got replaced. So you're buying it as a package. You're getting what you're getting, right? I mean, think about dating an 80-year-old woman. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, man. Well, that you, you're getting everything that, that led up to what that gun is. And some have been cared for a little bit better than others. Some of them are in need of considerable refurbishment to even dare think pulling the trigger on them again. Uh, some of them might have been stored less than ideally, but are still really functional, solid examples that, with a little bit of care, can be brought back really easily. In fact, much more easily than you might think. Sometimes all they need is, to, like, especially on a handgun, uh, they might only just need a fresh set of springs and some new magazine springs, and they'll run just fine. You know, make sure the bore's clean and the chamber's not pitted, and generally most uh, guns will uh, surprise you at how well they'll work. Um, we could certainly go down that rabbit hole a lot further, and we will as we get into this podcast. Um, we're going to go ahead and dive into a few other things. Um, grab that infield right there. I know this one. All right. I know what this one is for sure. All right. What do you think that is? 
Uh, uh, Lee Enfield, 303. Look closer. I don't know this one. All right. What do you see on the magazine? Huh? <laughs> Take a look at the muzzle. How big's the muzzle? Oh, that's a little bigger than a thirty cal. Yeah, it is. All right. So what we have here is a single shot riot shotgun. Uh, these were converted by Ishapur on the uh, you know number one Mark III action as a single shot four ten riot shotgun. Jeez, how cool is that? And I grabbed that to try to stump you. Just I, to see re- you- I was like, wait a minute. Okay, that is something that Eric would do. It's nice action, though. Oh yeah, isn't that cool? That is super cool, man. Is to take to take something uh, so iconic and to like to to. I mean, I've never seen that before. <laughs> yep. And that's something that you could just drop a 410 in right now. Absolutely. Yes. It is a 410 shotgun. And uh, what's cool is there's a lot of the collectible 410, um, you know, Arsenal produced shotgun shells that you can still get. They're oddly, like, really common. Hmm. Not the guns, but the ammo. They produce so much of the ammo, and it comes in this really cool crate. And it says, you know, 410 ball or 410 shotgun shells, like they did, I think, a slug, buckshot, birdshot, different loads, but. They're really cool, and they're, we've done a video on this particular gun. In fact, every single gun we've shown off so far has been in a YouTube video. Um, but they're just neat. They're fun to shoot. Uh, it takes all of the recoil out of a normal 303 uh, chambered number one Mark III or number four, or any type of infield. But the infield comes from a long line of service rifles. I mean, the Lee infield is was probably one of the best World War II battle rifles. I mean, you're talking a 10-shot repeater. You can work them wicked fast with some practice. You get into the Mad Minute territory, even with reloads, a good soldier could fire upwards of 20 shots in one minute out of one of these things, probably more. Um, I mean, I think the world record Mad Minute is like 30 rounds in one minute, like something crazy. And, of course, it was one of the uh, you know instructors right. at the school, of course, set the record because he's probably just had so many rounds you know, through the gun, but... They really can put a lot of lead in the air, and the 303 is no slouch. It's a very powerful cartridge. Uh, it's acquitted itself quite well in uh, you know world wars and continued to be used you know in later conflicts. And there's infields still floating around today. One of the most interesting stories of the Lee Enfield are the Mujahideen in Afghanistan yeah. that still use the Lee Enfield uh, today to harass no telling who. It's a iconic rifle, and quite honestly. It just looks really cool. It looks very, it has, it has a very distinctive look. I mean, it has basically no exposed barrel. It's probably one of the only Milsert rifles that has that profile. And it's just, there's no mistaking it. And it's just an overall great rifle. Um, the bolt is still very smooth. Now, I did have a question um, is that. And like it was that designs for the 410 that kind of like that bolt pop back because this is the only one that I've that okay I, that I've felt that just kind of automatically pops back on you like that. That's a good question. Okay, so so you've got a couple of different bolt mechanisms. Actually, there's several. I mean, obviously, a straight pull is in a different vein of existence. But when we talk about a Mauser style bolt or a turn bolt, you've got a cock on close and a cock on opening. Mm-hmm. The reason that that um, bolt 
is so easy to open is because you're not actually cocking it until you close the bolt. And if you think about it, a cock on close is smoother to operate because the gun gives you no resistance when you lift the bolt. Mm -hmm. It's only when you're closing the bolt. But see, you're already in movement. When you're closing the bolt, you're already pushing forward. You're stripping the cartridge. You're going to apply a certain amount of force because you know you've got to close the bolt. So it's much more intuitive for the bolt to cock as it closes because you're already in movement. So it actually utilizes the best economy of motion Mm -hmm. when it comes to operating a turn bolt than a cock on open. Most of your Mauser designs, now there are uh, some Mauser designs that do, like the Swedish Mauser, Mm -hmm. uh, cocks on closing, not on opening. And the infield is a design that will cock as the bolt closes. Arasaka, I believe, as well is a it, it's a cock on close. I don't I, remember. I, I, I believe it is. I believe yeah, it is. I don't remember on that one. God, but, uh, that glass as well, man. Aren't they smooth? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring some four ten. We're gonna take this bad boy out. Yep. I, I thought that was neat. So there's a lot of things out there that, from a military standpoint, yeah. I mean, like the the arsenal there, the Ishapur's uh, arsenal. When they made that particular gun in 410, they were just using guns they had left over. They weren't thinking, oh, this is going to have some historical significance one day. Uh, The same arsenal, uh, the Indians, basically did the same thing by converting number one Mark III's over to uh, shoot 7.62 by 51 NATO. Mm -hmm. I've got one of those behind you right there. Um, So those are out there. Those are called the 2A Ishapur, and they fire 7.62 by 51 that's cool because you don't have to worry about sourcing 308 ammo. You can shoot, you know, commonly available 308 ammo out of them and still scratch the itch of shooting, uh, you know, a uh, an infield, mm-hmm. but without having to source very expensive 303 ammo. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, I don't know too much about the Indian Army, but it seems that they're pretty, I guess, not forward thinking because I don't know enough about it, but it seems like they're on top of their their military game because i think they just changed their battle rifles as well to like a 416 variant um in in between they're in the middle of transitioning rifles even right now they're and to my knowledge they're not in any major conflict so it it just seems like they're they try to stay on top of it absolutely for for a country that's not in conflict all right so we're going to get out of the you know World War II and Victorian era and some of the, you know, those older guns. We'll get into a few more modern guns, but not by much. Uh, We're going to go maybe a little back and forward in time a bit. We'll get into some handguns and some auto-loading rifles. Um, Check out that one right there. Yep. All right. So what uh, Matt is holding here is a Czechoslovakian CZ-52 service pistol. And very com block. Oh yes, <laughs> it's um, very com block. And that's chambered in seven six two by twenty five Tokarev. And it's kind of weird, you know, that the Czechs were always sort of outliers, right? Uh, so they would have to adopt whatever cartridge the you know communist countries of the com block were using, uh, but they were very insistent on wanting their own gun designs. So you see some really interesting stuff come out of Czechoslovakia. So whereby uh, the Russians would be carrying a a TT-33, you know, Tokarev pistol, Mm -hmm. famous Tokarev pistol. The Tokarev. Um, The Czechs were like, nah, we want to design our own thing. So they designed the CZ-52 to fire the cartridge that they were required to use, but without having to use uh, the Tokarev pistol. But they all look very similar. That's the weird thing. (laughs) All right. So this gun is neat. It's delayed roller blowback. 
on a, it on, uses on a, a hand pair, gun. Yeah, it uses a pair of rollers. It's a really, really neat gun. Very smooth recoil. They're reasonably accurate. Uh, they do have a similar, and don't dry fire that one, I'm by not, the way. Yeah, I'm not. because um, on, on those guns, the firing pins are really brittle. You don't want to dry fire a CZ 52. Um, uses an eight round magazine, so pretty similar capacity to what you would see in a uh, Tokarev pistol. Um, really neat. They made about 200,000 of them uh, between the years of 1952 and 1954, so a really short production run. And uh, they provided about 30 years of military service before being replaced uh, by other pistols in the Czechoslovakian uh, service. But they're really neat. And back when 762x25 was a lot more affordable and available on the surplus market, these were really fun guns to shoot. You could shoot them for pennies on the dollar. And a very powerful pistol. um, And a uh, very reliable pistol. And reasonably accurate. The triggers are good. And the disassembly procedure on it is really, really unique. And also, the complete disassembly in terms of getting down to the smaller parts, it uses, if you'll notice, on, I believe, the right side of the pistol, the grip's kind of covered up a bit, but it uses a plate that drops in on the side of the pistol to expose all the inner workings. Uh, Look, I'll show you. Right here, let me see it. So, you can see, see this parting line right here on the left side of the gun? Yep. It's a plate that covers up the action. If you look, you can see the parting line on the receiver. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting design. It just has a side plate, and then bam, there's all the guts. So a very forward-thinking type of thing. It's very interesting because if they would have just continued the line of the gun straight down the barrel, it would be a 1911. It's very similar. In, in looks, not in not in the way that the, the delayed roller blowback or any of them in a workings work, but visually... If they would have just continued that straight, it would with with the uh, cocking serrations in the back, it would look very similar to a nineteen eleven. I will say they do point a little weird. They, they do. It's very thin. They, they it is a thin gun, yeah. and they do point a little weird. I feel like if they would have got that grip angle back a little bit more, it might have pointed a little bit more naturally. It does have sort of a uh, a Colt 1903 feel to it, where the grip is more of a straight angle rather than like the grip angle you'd come to expect on a 1911 being a little more ergonomic. That's correct. Yeah, and it it, it points like a triangle. So it, for those that are listening, if you can imagine l- looking down a triangle and watching the two sides kind of converge into a convex, that's what that's what this gun does. So when you're looking down the sights, it it triangles to a point, and then also, the grip angle, like you said, it almost, it's the opposite of what you want on a high grip angle. It forces your hand lower on the on the actual handle. So, it, to shoot this would be very interesting because it would it would increase muzzle rise like because it's putting your hand in a much lower position than you want. To be fair, too, I mean, the 7.62 by 25 is no slouch in a handgun. I mean, it, it's not a light recoiling pistol, although the delayed roller blowback does help with that. Um, and they are a really interesting footnote. So let's it, it, move on. Yeah, it's just again, you're used to that high grip dovetail, like yeah. really able to get your get your hand on it's it. It's just different. Yeah, you know, a lot of people may not super know that cool exist. though, dude. That is super cool. But we're gonna check out another handgun. All right, now we are going back in time considerably here. This is an 1896, uh, also known as a C96 broom handle Mauser pistol. Uh, nickname is the broom handle. It's not the official terminology. The C96 is uh, its official designation, but uh, so this is a German-produced uh, service pistol, and obviously a very, very early 
uh, type of service pistol. It is stripper clip fed, uses a 10-round stripper clip that has to be fed in through the top of the action. So you do have a fixed magazine that's not removable. Now, they did have some select fire versions of this gun later that used a detachable magazine that. Uh, that were full auto, that were you know put to use very well. And then they later chambered them in 9mm Luger and things like that later on. Um, but this one is in the 30 Mauser cartridge. The reason I chose this gun to compare to the CZ-52 is that it's not to be confused with the 762 by 25 um, The 762 by 25 is a much hotter cartridge than the 30 Mauser, but it will chamber in that gun. So if you shoot 762 by 25 out of this gun, you will physically damage it. you got to use the correct pressure. So the 30 Mauser is in the same vein as the 762 by 25 but lower power. Lower, so you'll we'll blow the gun apart. Yes, you the don't want to. You do not want to shoot the wrong cartridge. I was going to ask you about the, the the select fire model because I'll be honest, and a lot of our listeners they were introduced to these Milserp rifles with the older Call of Duty games, which really put them in a prolific light. Um, you have you know, like I think you mentioned it uh, with the uh, with the Swedish is that K ninety eight. You, the Swiss K31. K31. And then that got replaced with the SVT or the, well, the it variant? Got, it got replaced with the P57. Okay. So the, the SVT and then uh, that particular rifle were in like the older Call of Duty games. And so was the Select Fire Mauser. And that's kind of where you get in that that really cool factor of like, wow, that's these guns existed. Yeah. I mean, th- holding this Mauser with the, with the stock on it, I mean, it really puts it in perspective with, yes, they're, they're wonderful guns, but how ergonomic they are not. Like, getting your hands around these, it just feels like it's going to chew you up. I mean, you put your hand in the wrong place on, on this gun, and I feel like it's going to get smashed. Well, if you think about it, it's like the first PDW yeah. in a lot of ways. But, I mean, just having my hand, I feel like this hammer, this elongated hammer is going to come back and, like, smack the crap out of your hand, or yeah. you put your... You're going to get chewed up by putting your finger in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. It, They'll hurt you. Yeah, it's it's real. It's, it's almost like crawling around in those tanks, man. Like You have to su- be super careful because everything is designed to hurt you. That's right. <laughs> so a couple of interesting notes about the broom handle for those that are listening as well. You look at the tangent sight in the rear. So it's got a rifle sight on it. That it does. Just like out to a very optimistic thousand meters. Which, <laughs> I mean, hey, you could certainly harass someone at that distance, I suppose. I have shot this broom handle out to 600 yards. Jeez. Now, I wouldn't say it's like deathly accurate or anything, but if some soldiers were milling around in a, in a, on a battlefield or in a trench and you needed to harass them, the rounds get there, and, and the sights do work in their intended uh, distances and stuff. Also, interesting note about the broom handle, there's not a single screw in the gun except the screw that holds the grip handle on. That's it. That's the only screw in the gun. Wow. It's all clockworks. So the way it's designed, it's really, really crazy. It's a giant mousetrap of different parts that all work in a concert of mechanical engineering that's absolutely genius. The Chinese loved the broom handle. Uh, they were in use a lot. The Spanish loved the broom handle. That must be a nightmare for a soldier in the field to actually have to try to clean or field strip or disassemble. They are not... Very friendly to take apart and clean. Now, when they were brand new, probably a little easier to deal with. As they get worn out, you know, something can fall off of them pretty easily. Like, it's not something you want to disassemble in a field environment. 
But to be fair, they run pretty dang well. And they were generally issued with just a, a long cleaning rod. And what most soldiers would do is just lock the bolt to the rear and scrub the barrel out really good, put a little lubricant on it, and just keep running. And they would generally only clean them like really, really well when they got too dirty to run. So what but you're they, telling they held me, up pretty good. What you're telling me, Eric, is nothing has changed. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So the broom handle's cool, and it paved the way for a lot of PDWs, and it really was the first personal defense weapon. It yeah, was it intended is. as a stopgap between rifles and pistols. You know, you may not be in rifle range, but you may not be close enough to use a standard handgun. This could bridge the distance. You're running around in a trench. Trench or right? bunkers. Trench warfare. You turn a corner. All right, you've got a short, compact weapon that can get around in tight locations. Mm-hmm. You know, you're crawling around in no man's land, and you've got barbed wire fences everywhere. No telling what. Uh, it was a weapon that wouldn't get caught on things quite as easily, so a very compact weapon. That's why the Chinese loved it so much out in the jungle, you know, fighting around in the jungle and stuff. It's more you know, short, compact, easy to carry. Uh, in fact, behind us over here, I've got a Chinese bandolier for the broom handle pistol. Yeah, I see that hanging up yeah, right so now. So that is for the 10-shot uh, Mauser broom handle uh, clips. I'm surprised they didn't have something similar to this in uh, Vietnam with the uh, tunnel rats. They were using 45s with, you know, seven-round magazines, but something like this, I'm sure, would... would I be, would not would, doubt that yeah. some of these weren't out there in NAM somewhere. Or you know, something... The NBA or, and I know there's a pretty big gap between those conflicts, but something, you know similar maybe similar in, in size length of pull and whatnot and i mean even getting into mill serps you could use some really cool mill serps from that era as well you're not i mean it's it, what we've what we've been talking about so far are um you know pretty old mill serps ranging back to like you know world war ii and and prior um but even with mill serps going forward you have like some really cool stuff with like you know M1As and M14s and some some of those like wood furniture guns as well. Yeah, so we'll actually I'll tell you what we'll we'll get into something like that right now. So we've got a Romanian PSL right here. Nice. Uh check that out. Pick it up see what you think about it. Oh, it's a big boy. Yep. So the PSL is a really neat gun. And uh we're getting Kind of into like the mid to late nineties. Knit. So at this point, you're talking what? This is a thirty year old gun design. Yep. And basically, the PSL gets confused a heck of a lot with the SVD. Uh, it's not a Dragunov. It's inspired by the Dragunov, and it's meant to be used in the same type of role that the Dragunov is. But to call it a Dragunov is just simply not true. Uh, it is not a Dragunov. It is built on an FPK receiver, so it's basically a big AK. It's got a big old long, uh, huge, long stroke gas piston uh, AK operation. So it's it's essentially just a grown up AK, and uses a ten shot box that's chambered in seven six two by fifty four rimmed. They are very very. Uh, if you get one in good shape, they're very reliable. They're this very one looks accurate. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Very very cool guns. Yeah, that's a great example, man, and it really puts it in perspective with how heavy they are because this gun probably weighs twice as much as any of the previous Milsurp rifles but i mean obviously you have an optic and an optic mount on this but everything screams ak like the stamped like stamped receivers the wood furniture everything about it and i mean it just it, it there's no replacement for this rifle 
I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking here, and um, I was wrong. The reason I said the 90s on this is because that's when we started importing them here into the United States around the uh, early to mid-90s. Uh, I want to correct myself there. They were actually in service from 1974 until now. So they've been in service, you know, almost 50 years. And this is a this is a DMR rifle. It is. So it was it, designed, you know, you know, around that whole and, and to give them credit, I think they were one of the first people to do that. To to say, hey, DMR is in a very important role. They understand that yes, they're snipers and America was fielding snipers regularly. But there wasn't quite that DMR aspect of it. And there was never a rifle dedicated to a DMR role. And then you had this bad boy come out. Well, yeah. I mean, what what they intended with this, and, and again, guys, if you're listening in on this uh, particular podcast and you'd like to see a YouTube video of the exact rifle he's holding, we have done several videos where we've shot this gun to various distances. Uh, we engage body armor at 300 yards with it, and uh, we get some really good shot strings with this thing out to 600 yards. Uh, I have shot this gun out to extended ranges. It's very accurate. Uh, if you notice the date on the gun, look there in front of the magazine on the receiver. What date is it? 1998. All right, so this one was imported in 1998, and it actually comes from the Kujir factory in Romania. This is an actual Romania Kujir factory produced PSL, a real deal PSL, not a parts kit. Uh, this is well, this one was produced at the Kujir factory in Romania. So the purpose of the PSL, it was designed to kind of fall into the same vein of the SVD. You and I have probably been shot at with these things and just didn't know it. Probably. You know, the, those more than times where you're rolling down the road and you hear a random like ping or noise on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, trust me. Um, these things have been in use in the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are still in use around the world today. Uh, it is still a viable platform, even in today's battlefield. It was meant to fill a role very similar to what we would call designated marksman or, you know, that type of the role. DMR role. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that was before DMRs were things. So back then in the seventies, what they were thinking is, Hey, we've got all these guys armed with AKs. How can we, uh, make a little bit of a standoff distance so what they would do is arm like one or two guys in a platoon or two or three guys or maybe maybe each uh, squad. You, yeah, has- each squad. Yeah, like, you know, a couple of guys in a squad or, you know, a small unit could issue these every fifth or sixth man or whatever. And now you've, you're creating a standoff distance. You can you can pin down the enemy with these rifles with very accurate base of fire. And then the uh, your your shock troops can get in a little closer and, and get in and crush the enemy. So. It was really meant to not really be a sniper rifle, but to be a standoff rifle that could increase the standoff distance of your riflemen. Because, you know, an AK does leave a little bit to be desired in terms of precision at distances probably over 250, 300 meters. A good soldier, now remember, you're talking iron sights. These guys don't have modern uh, optics like we were, you know, deal with now. They didn't have really good mounting systems for optics like we have now. So to compare it to a modern AK... That with a modern optic and a modern scope mount, I mean, I've shot a 545 chambered AK out to 700 yards, and it will connect maybe 60% of the time on a man-sized target, which is pretty miraculous considering, okay? Yeah. But that's with a modern optic, modern scope mount. Remember, we're talking iron sights. If a soldier back then could shoot a point target out to 300 yards, that was a pretty considerable feat of marksmanship. 
these rifles were designed to really fill that five, 600 meter, like really double down on the distance. And it's really just a big AK. None of the parts on the PSL are compatible with the SVD. Uh, where they do fill the same role, they are completely different guns. And while it does look like an AK, it doesn't look like an AK. So it's just a bigger version. I really find it interesting that the optic on there is like no other optic that I've ever used. So it, it kind of forces you into not having any eye relief. So it's got this, uh, and this, I believe it's also on the Dragonoff as well. It's uh, kind of an optic and it has a rubber, a little rubber bushing that is an eye cup, if you will, that uh, kind of contours to your eye. So if you're a left-handed shooter, good luck because I don't think it works uh, left-handed. But just when you're used to shooting a modern optic, you're used to having you know a bit of eye relief because you don't want to get scope bite. Um, so you don't want to get smacked in the face. But this particular optic for this weapon is designed for you to have your eye like right up on it. So it's not... It's scary. It is a very scary feeling to have your eye socket on an optic. You know, they are surprisingly good rifles. You know, the barrels are a little bit long, and they do whip a bit. It's kind of a thin barrel, so it's not something you're going to shoot, like, 100 rounds out of in one session and think, all right, it's going to maintain that accuracy. Right. But It will start to string on you, I bet. It will. They yeah. do string as they heat up, but they really are good rifles, and I think that they've acquitted themselves quite nicely. Um, in our case, probably not the, the kind of nice we want to see because they've probably been used against us. But, all right, we're going to get into another cool autoloader. Um, this is a Swedish Jungman. Hmm. Arms. Yeah, yeah, it is Swedish. Uh, <laughs> Swedish Jungman, and it's an AG42B. All right, these are really cool guns. And um, so the action on this thing is super funky, and I'm not even going to try to tell you from here how it works, but it is an autoloader. It shoots uh, 6 5 by 55 Swedish. So very flat shooting, very accurate, and they will absolutely chew your fingers to pieces if you're not careful uh, in terms of operating. It requires a very, very specific manual of arms to uh, use it safely. And then um, I instantly stopped fiddling with yes. it after that statement. I'm yep. like, well, I'm just going to stop. I don't want to lose a finger. We do have a YouTube video on this rifle. Um, this one is a really, really nice example. They are fantastic guns, and... Um, a really interesting thing, too, you know, it is a direct gas impingement rifle. So it uses a gas tube that imparts gas forces directly on the bolt face. Not exactly like an AR-15, but it does use a direct gas impingement system just like an AR-15 would. Does it have a ported barrel? Yes. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. That is really cool. I have not yet seen any actual military rifle that has porting. Normally, they just slap a brake on there or a flash hider, but this has quite a bit of porting, actually. All that's, right. That's really interesting. How does it shoot? They shoot really, really good. So I would if, imagine so. If you guys so. check out the um, YouTube video that we posted on this particular rifle, um, the, the sights are completely adjustable for windage, elevation, super, super nice sights that are on them. Even though the sight radius is a little short by some standards, they are very, very easy guns to shoot. The stocks are very slim and easy to hold on to. Um, the trigger is fantastic. The action, super, super smooth. A, a child could shoot this gun efficiently. It has absolutely 
you know, hardly any felt recoil. It really doesn't kick much more than a 5.56 five, with that really good muzzle brake that's machined into the barrel. I mean, it, they're super nice. Um, so the AG42 is designed by Eric Eklund, and I am reading this off of Wikipedia. Make sure I get the names right. Uh, and they were designed here around 1941, and they made about 30,000 units. The one that you're holding is the B version, which is a slightly upgraded version. But really cool stuff, you know. It uh, uses the M41 uh, D-shank projectile, which is their sniper round. And when we did the video on this gun, we did have some original M41 sniper ammunition. And, oh my gosh, you want to talk about it. Uh, one of the most accurate semi-auto service rifles I'm pretty that sure I've I ever saw shot. You, I saw that video. I think you were hitting that 600, weren't you? Was this the was this the one you took out the six hundred? Easily, yeah. I, I think I saw both you and Chad connected at six hundred with this. Yep. Says Dude, that, that, is, that the sights will adjust from hundred meters to eight hundred meters uh, in very very tiny increments. We did shoot it out to six hundred meters. Uh, let's see. Now, just from handling it, and I know this predates it, but it, to me, it feels very M one A ish. Did you not get that feeling like when you when you when you look down the sights? Um, it it points like an like M one A. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, even I mean, even the even the the profile of the wood on top, it it looks it, like it's that. got a battle rifle feel yeah. to it. It certainly does. Uh, these were in service through around the early sixties, and uh, you know, Sweden has always been one of those countries that's sort of in that sort of neutral zone in terms of neutrality. Uh, always right. Yes. So uh, Switzerland and Sweden both. You know, whenever you're talking service rifles um, that come from those countries, they tend to be in pretty good shape, just because they're not used in quite the same amount of conflicts or in the same manner that other you know firearms from other countries were. I mean, you'll see infields that are absolute rat turds because they're beat to heck and back because they were used and uh, and everything. So, but that's what I love so much about it. I mean, it's the fact that. It was used, and it was it was used for its purpose, and it lived a long and meaningful life. And you're you're giving it more life uh, by using it and getting out there and shooting it and just using it for what it's supposed to be used for. And um, you see it all the time. People buy milserps and they kind of like put it in the closet, and they're like, "Oh, I'm collecting it for what?" I mean, unless it is a you know a, a you know, excellent grade unfired weapon. I can understand that. But if you buy a Milsert rifle and it has some wear and it's dinged up, then you probably bought it at the peak of, of, of the price. I don't imagine it's going to go up unless you hold it for another 20 years. And then yes, you're going to get some equity out of it, but you know, enjoy it, go out. And the ammo right now is not, I wouldn't say it's plentiful, but it's the perfect time to have a Milsert because you're shooting uncommon rounds. You're shooting rounds that, you know, people aren't out there scooping up. Yes. Are they, you know, a dollar 50 around for, you know, a, a seven millimeter or eight millimeter? Yes. Right. But so it's five, five, six. Exactly. <laughs> and you can get, I, I get so much more enjoyment of pulling a trigger. If I was to take that Lee infield out on 410, I would get much more value per trigger pull off that rifle than I would a 556. Yeah. For I the mean, same amount of money. It it depends, you know, but 
I think that Millsurps have a place in every collection. I, I believe every gun enthusiast should eventually, you know, try to chase down a few Millsurps just for the, to appreciate the the finities of them. Uh, they are addictive. They get really uh, really fun to mess with, and I love the history and I love shooting them. And man, when you get behind a great Millsurp that's in really good condition, really awesome military rifle that's shooting great for you at the range that day, it's a really rewarding feeling. Um, to to hit a target far away with iron sights. Oh yeah, and and to know that hey man, that this gun is doing its job all these years later, and that you're kind of a custodian of that. That's an excellent way to put it. Yeah. You are a custodian of that rifle. Yeah, these aren't my rifles. Uh, they're the ownership is a abstract term when it comes to Millsurps because these aren't mine. They're going to be someone else's one day. They're going to outlive me and whoever I pass them on to, and then whoever they pass them on to. So. Millsurps should be appreciated as a custodianship, and I hope that maybe we uh, lit that fire in some of you to get out and check them out. You know, they're really cool. And, you know, to, to put it like that is, it's really interesting and weird because you, well, I'm going to say you or the listeners, I don't feel the same way about my modern firearms. So, like, my modern M4s and my my Glocks and my pistols, I don't feel that kind of, that custodian or conservatorship feeling with those firearms because I don't they have they don't have that same history attached to it the history that's attached to it is I walked into a gun store and I bought it I mean granted there are there are gifts and there's rifles I know you've you've given me a few that those have a special place but the ones that you just walk in and buy off the shelf I mean are they special yeah but they're not as special and when I say you know, it's funner to shoot the Millsurps. That's because you don't have the opportunity to get out there. It's uncommon. You don't get to shoot them as much. So it puts a bigger smile on your face when you pull that trigger and you see this 100-year-old rifle hit a target, you know, 100, 100 yards down range. You're like, holy crap, you know, just a nail driver. It kind of takes you back in time and puts you in a different world. So don't think that um, that modern guns aren't cool, too. I mean, the thing is... You create your own stories, right? You know, you can buy a gun right off the shelf and you go out and make your own stories, your own memories, and that's fine too. But the cool thing about most mill syrups, I'm sorry, is they come with memories. And that's something that's kind of cool. You you get to kind of access that and be part of it. So, guys, thanks so much for tuning in to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I love talking about mill syrups. I could go down this rabbit hole a lot further, but we're going to let you guys go for the day. We'll see you next Friday. We hope that you enjoyed our podcast. Make sure you um, you know leave us a great rating, uh, a nice comment that helps us uh, show up in the search, re- search results a little bit better. Um, have a great day. Have a great week. Uh, hang in there. Life is going to be okay. We're all going to you know survive. Uh, live in liberty. Be happy. Stay free. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.